Saint Bartholomew's Eve by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anna Christensen. Chapter Three. In a French Chateau. The three days' ride to the Chateau of the Countess de la Ville was marked by no incident. To Philip, it was an exceedingly pleasant one. Everything was new to him. The architecture of the churches and villages, the dress of the people, their modes of agriculture, all differing widely from those to which he was accustomed. In some villages the Catholics predominated, and here the passage of the little party was regarded with frowning brows and muttered threats. By the Huguenots they were saluted respectfully, and if they halted, many questions were asked their followers as to news about the intentions of the court, the last rumors as to the attitude of Condé, and the prospects of a continuance of peace. Here, too, great respect was paid to Marie and Philip, when it was known they were relatives of the Countess de la Ville, and belonged to the family of the de Moulis. Emily had for some time been a widow, the Count, her husband, having fallen in the Battle of Dreux at the end of the year 1562. But being an active and capable woman, she had taken into her hands the entire management of the estates, and was one of the most influential among the Huguenot nobles of that part of the country. From their last halting place, Marie Vailon sent on a letter by one of the men to her sister, announcing their coming. She had written on their landing at La Rochelle, and they had been met on their way by a messenger from the countess, expressing her delight that her sister had at last carried out her promise to visit her, and saying that Francois was looking eagerly for the coming of his cousin. The chateau was a semi-fortified building, capable of making a stout resistance against any sudden attack. It stood on the slope of a hill, and Philip felt a little awed at its stately aspect as they approached it. When they were still a mile away, a party of horsemen rode out from the gateway, and in a few minutes their leader reined up his horse in front of them, and, springing from it, advanced towards Philip, who also alighted and helped his aunt to dismount. "'My dear aunt,' the young fellow said, doffing his hat, "'I am come in the name of my mother to greet you, and to tell you how joyful she is that you have, at last, come back to us.' This is my cousin Philip, of course, though you are not what I expected to see. My mother told me that you are two years my junior, and I had looked to find you still a boy. But, by my faith, you seem to be as old as I am. Why, you are taller by two inches, and broader and stronger, too, I should say. Can it be true that you are but sixteen? That is my age, cousin Francois. And I am, as you expected, but a boy yet, and I can assure you, no taller or broader than many of my English schoolfellows of the same age. But we must not delay, aunt. Francois, I said, turning again to her. My mother's commands were urgent, that I was not to delay a moment in private talk with you, but to bring you speedily on to her. Therefore I pray you to mount again and ride on with me, for doubtless she is watching impatiently now, and will chide me rarely if we linger. Accordingly the party remounted at once and rode forward to the chateau. A dozen men-at-arms were drawn up at the gate, and, on the steps of the entrance from the courtyard into the chateau itself, the countess was standing. Francois leapt from his horse, and was by the side of his aunt, as Philip reined in his horse. Taking his hand, she sprang lightly from the saddle, and in a moment the two sisters fell into each other's arms. It was more than twenty years since they last met, but time had dealt gently with them both. The countess had changed least. She was two or three years older than Marie, was tall, and had been somewhat stately even as a girl. She had had many cares, but her position had always been assured. As the wife of a powerful noble, 
she had been accustomed to be treated with deference and respect, and although the troubles of the time and the loss of her husband had left their marks, she was still a fair and stately woman at the age of forty-three. Marie, upon the other hand, had lived an untroubled life for the past twenty years. She had married a man who was considered beneath her, but the match had been in every way a happy one. Her husband was devoted to her, and the expression of her face showed that she was a thoroughly contented and happy woman. "'You are just what I fancied you would be, Marie, a quiet little homebird, living in your nest beyond the sea, and free from all the troubles and anxieties of our unhappy country. You have been good to write so often, far better than I have been, and I seem to know all about your quiet, well-ordered home, and your good husband and his business that flourishes so. I thought you were a little foolish in your choice, and that our father was wrong in mating you as he did.' but it has turned out well, and you have been living in quiet waters while we have been encountering a sea of troubles. And this tall youth is our nephew, Philip? I wish you could have brought over Lucie with you. It would have been pleasant indeed for us three sisters to be reunited again, if only for a time. Why, your Philip is taller than Francois, and yet he is two years younger. I congratulate you and Lucie upon him. Salute me, nephew. I had not looked to see so proper a youth. You show the blood of the de plainly, Philip. I suppose you get your height and your strength from your English father? They are big men, these English, Emily, and his father is big even among them. But, as you say, save in size, Philip takes after our side rather than his father's. And, of course, he has mixed so much with our colony at Canterbury that, in spite of his being English-bred, we have preserved in him something of the French manner, and I think his heart is fairly divided between the two countries. Let us go in, the countess said. You need rest and refreshment after your journey, and I long to have a quiet talk with you. Francois, do you take charge of your cousin? I have told the serving men to let you have a meal in your own apartments, and then you can show him over the chateau and the stables. Francois and Philip bowed to the two ladies, and then they went off together. That is good, the young count said, laying his hand on Philip's shoulder. Now we shall get to know each other. You will not be angry, I hope. When I tell you that though I have looked forward to seeing my aunt and you, I have yet been a little anxious in my mind. I do not know why, but I have always pictured the English as somewhat rough and uncouth, as doughty fighters, for so they have shown themselves to our cost, but as somewhat deficient in the graces of manner. And when I heard that my aunt was bringing you over to leave you for a time with us, since you longed to fight in the good cause, I have thought, pray, do not be angry with me, for I feel ashamed of myself now and he hesitated. "'That I should be a rough cob, whom you would be somewhat ashamed of introducing to your friends as your cousin,' Philip laughed. "'I am not surprised. English boys have ideas just as erroneous about the French, and it was a perpetual wonder to my schoolfellows that, being half French, I was yet as strong and as tough as they were. Doubtless I should have been somewhat different, had I not lived so much with my uncle and aunt and the Huguenot community at Canterbury.' Monsieur Vaillant and my aunt have always impressed upon me that I belong to a noble French family, and might some day come over here to stay with my relations, and have taken much pains with my deportment and manners, and have so far succeeded that I am always called Frenchy among my English companions, though in their own games and sports I could hold my own with any of them. And can you ride, Philip? I can sit on any horse, but I have had no opportunity of learning the menage. That matters little, after all. Francois said. Though it is an advantage to be able to manage your horse with a touch of the heel or the slightest pressure of the rein, and to make him wheel and turn at will, while leaving both arms free to use your weapons. You have learned to fence? 
Yes, there were some good masters among the colony, and many a lesson have I had from old soldiers passing through, who paid for a week's hospitality by putting me up to a few tricks with the sword. I thought you could fence, Francois said. You would hardly have that figure and carriage unless you had practice with a sword. And you dance, I suppose. Many of our religion regard such amusement as frivolous, if not sinful. But my mother, although as staunch a Huguenot as breathes, insists upon my learning it, not as an amusement, but as an exercise. There was no reason, she said, why the Catholic should monopolize all the graces. Yes, I learned to dance, and for the same reason. I think my uncle rather scandalized the people of our religion in Canterbury. He maintained that it was necessary as part of the education of a gentleman, and that in the English Protestant court dancing was as highly thought of as in that of France, the queen herself being noted for her dancing, and none can throw doubts upon her Protestantism. My mother and aunt were both against it, but as my father supported my uncle, he had his own way. Well, I see, Philip, that we shall be good comrades. There are many among us younger Huguenots who, though as staunch in the religion as our fathers, and as ready to fight and die for it if need be, yet do not see that it is needful to go about always with grave faces, and to be cut off from all innocent amusements. It is our natural disposition to be gay, and I see not why, because we hold the mass in detestation, and have revolted against the authority of the Pope, and the abuses of the Church. We should go through life as if we were attending a perpetual funeral. And thus I am mistaken, such is your disposition also. For although your face is grave, your eyes laugh. I have been taught to bear myself gravely in the presence of my elders, Philip replied with a smile. And truly at Canterbury, the French colony was a grave one, being strangers in a strange land. But among my English friends, I think I was as much disposed for a bit of fun or mischief as any of them. But I thought the English were a grave race. I think not, Francois. We call England Merry England. I think we are an earnest people, but not a grave one. English boys play with all their might. The French boys of the colony never used to join in our sports, regarding them as rude and violent beyond all reason. But it is all in good humor, and it is rare indeed for anyone to lose his temper, however rough the play and hard the knocks. Then they are fond of dancing and singing, save among the strictest sects, and the court is as gay as any in Europe. I do not think that the English can be called a grave people. Well, I am glad that it is so, Philip, and especially that you yourself are not grave. Now, as we have finished our meal, let us visit the stables. I have a horse already set aside for you, but I saw as we rode hither that you are already excellently mounted. Still, Victor, that is his name, shall be at your disposal. A second horse is always useful, for shot and arrows no more spare a horse than his rider. The stables were large and well-ordered, for during the past two months there had been large additions made by the countess in view of the expected troubles. This is my charger. I call him Rollo. He was bred on the estate, and when I am upon him I feel that the king is not better mounted. He is a splendid animal indeed, Philip said, as Rollo tossed his head and whinnied with pleasure at his master's approach. He can do anything but talk, Francois said as he petted him. He will lie down when I tell him, will come to my whistle, and with the reins lying loose on his neck will obey my voice as readily as he would my hand. This is my second horse, Pluto. He is the equal of Rollo in strength and speed but not so docile and obedient, and he has a temper of his own. He looks it, Philip agreed. I should keep well out of reach of his heels and jaws. He is quiet enough when I am on his back, Francois laughed, but I own that he is a terror of the stable boys. This is Victor. He is not quite as handsome as Rollo, but he has speed and courage and good manners. 
"'He is a beautiful creature,' Philip said enthusiastically. "'I was very well satisfied with my purchase, "'but he will not show to advantage by the side of Victor.' "'Ah, I see they have put him in the next stall,' Francois said. "'He is a fine animal,' he went on after examining the horse closely. "'He comes from Gascony, I should say. "'He has signs with Spanish blood.' "'Yes, from Gascony, or Navarre. "'I was very fortunate in getting him.' "'And he related how the animal had been left at La Rochelle. "'You got him for less than half his value, Philip. "'What are you going to call him?' "'I shall call him Robin. "'That was the name of my favorite horse at home. "'I see you have got some stout animals in the other stalls. "'Though, of course, they are a very different quality to your own. "'Yes, many of them are new purchases. "'We have taken on thirty men at arms, "'stout fellows, old soldiers all.' whom my mother will send into the field if we come to blows. Besides these, there will be some twenty of our tenants. We could have raised the whole number among them if we had chosen. For if we called up the full strength of the estate, and put all bound to service in the field in wartime, we could turn out fully three hundred. But of these, well nigh a third are Catholics, and could not in any way be relied on, nor would it be just to call upon them to fight against their co-religionists. Again, it would not do to call out all our Huguenot tenants, for these would leave their wives and families and homes and property, to say nothing of the chateau, at the mercy of the Catholics while we are away. I, I do not think that our Catholic tenants would interfere with them, still less with the chateau, for our family have ever been good masters, and my mother is loved by men of both parties. Still, bands might come from other districts or from the towns to pillage or slay with the estate left without fighting men. Therefore we have taken these men-at-arms into our service, with twenty of our own tenants, all young men belonging to large families, while the rest will remain behind as a guard for the estate and chateau, and as in all they could muster some two hundred and fifty strong, and would be joined by the other Huguenots of the district, they would not likely be molested, unless one of the Catholic armies happened to come in this direction. Directly I start with a troop, the younger sons of the tenants will be called in to form a garrison here. We have five and thirty names down, and there are twenty men capable of bearing arms among the household, many of whom have seen service. Jacques Perrault, our seneschal, has been a valiant soldier in his time, and would make the best of them, and my mother would assuredly keep our flag flying till the last. I shall go away in comfort, for unless the Guises march this way, there is little fear of trouble in our absence. We are fortunate in this province. The parties are pretty evenly divided, and have a mutual respect for each other. In districts where we are greatly outnumbered, it is hard for fighting men to march away with the possibility that on their return they will find their families murdered and their homes leveled to the ground. Now we will take a turn round the grounds. Their beauty has been sadly destroyed. You see, before the trouble seven years ago broke out, there was a view from the windows on this side of the house over the park and shrubberies, but at that time my father thought it necessary to provide against sudden attacks and therefore before he went away to the war he had this wall with its flanking towers erected. All the tenants came in and helped, and it was built in five weeks' time. It has, as you see, made the place safe from a sudden attack, for on the other three sides the old defenses remain unaltered. It was on this side only that my grandfather had the house modernized, believing that the days of civil war were at an end. You see, this new wall forms a large quadrangle, we call it the Countess's Garden, and my mother has done her best by planting it with shrubs and fast-growing trees to make up for the loss of the view she formerly had from the windows. Along one side you see there are storehouses, which are screened from view by that bank of turf. They are all now full of grain. There is a gate, as you see, opposite. 
In case of trouble, cattle will be driven in here and the garden turned into a stockyard, so that there is no fear of our being starved out. Fifty-five men are a small garrison for so large a place, Francois. Yes, but that is only against a sudden surprise. In case of alarm, the spot... The Protestant tenants would all come in with their wives and families, and the best of their horses and cattle, and then there will be force enough to defend the place against anything short of a siege by an army. You see, there is a moat runs all around. It is full now on three sides, and there is a little stream runs down from behind, which would fill the fourth side in a few hours. Tomorrow we will take a ride through the park, which lies beyond that wall. Entering the house, they passed through several stately apartments, and then entered a large hall completely hung with arms and armor. This is the grand hall, and you see it also serves the purpose of a salle d'armes. Here we have arms and armor for a hundred men, for although all the tenants are bound, by the terms of their holding, to appear when called upon fully armed and accoutred, each with so many men according to the size of his farm, there may well be deficiencies, especially as, until the religious troubles began, it was a great number of years since they had been called upon to take the field. For the last eight years, however, they have been trained and drilled, fifty at a time coming up once a week. That began two years before the last war, as my father always held that it was absurd to take a number of men, wholly unaccustomed to the use of arms, into the field. Agincourt taught that lesson to our nobles, though it has been forgotten by most of them. We have two officers accustomed to drill and martial men, and these act as teachers here in the park. The footmen practice with pike and sword. They are exercised with arquebus and crossbows in the park, and the mounted men are taught to maneuver and charge, so that, in case of need, we can show a good face against any body of troops of equal number. It is here I practice with my maitre d'armes, and with Montpace and Bordeaux, our two officers. Ah, here is Charles, my maitre d'armes. Charles, this is my cousin Philip, who will also be a pupil of yours while he remains here. What do you say, Philip? Will we try a bout with blunted swords just now? With pleasure, Philip said. The art of fencing had not, at that time, reached the perfection it afterwards attained. The swords used were long and straight, and sharpened at both edges, and were used as much for cutting as thrusting. In single combat on foot, long daggers were generally held in the left hand, and were used for the purpose both of guarding and of striking at close quarters. They put on thick quilted doublets and light helmets with visors. Do you use a dagger, Philip? No, I have never seen one used in England. We are taught to guard with our swords as well as to strike with them. Monjour has learned from English teachers? The maitre d'armes asked. I have had English teachers as well as French, Philip said. We all learn the use of the sword in England, but my uncle, Monsieur Vaillon, has taken great pains in having me taught also by such French professors of arms as lived in Canterbury, or happened to pass through it, but I own that I prefer the English style of fighting. We generally stand upright to our work, equally poised on the two feet for advance or retreat, while you lean with the body far forward and the arm outstretched, which seems to me to cripple the movements. Yes, but it puts the body out of harm's way, Francois said. It is the arm's business to guard the body, Francois and it is impossible to strike a downright blow when leaning so far forward. We strike but little nowadays in single combat, the maitre d'armes said. The point is more effective. That is doubtless so, maitre Charles, Philip agreed, but I have not learned fencing for the sake of fighting duels, but to be able to take part in the field of battle. The Spaniards are said to be masters of the straight sword, 
and yet they had been roughly used in the western seas by our sailors, who, methinks, always used the edge. The two now took up their position facing each other. Their attitude was strikingly different. Francois stood on bent knees, leaning far forward, while Philip stood erect, with his knees but slightly bent, ready to spring either forwards or backwards, with his arm but half extended. For a time both fought cautiously. Francois had been well taught, having had the benefit, whenever he was in Paris, of the best masters there. He was extremely active and, as they warmed to their work, Philip had difficulty in standing his ground against his impetuous rushes. Some minutes passed without either of them succeeding in touching the other. At length the maitre d'armes called upon them to lower their swords. "'That is enough,' he said. "'You are equally matched. I congratulate you, Monsieur Philip. You have been well taught, and indeed there are not many youths of his age who could hold their own with my people. Take off your helmets. Enough has been done for one day.' Pest Philip, Francois said as he removed his helmet. I was not wrong when I said that, from your figure, I was sure that you had learned fencing. Maitre Charles interfered on my behalf, and to save me the mortification of defeat. I had nearly shot my bolt, and you had scarcely begun. I own myself a convert. Your attitude is better than ours, that is, when the hand is skillful enough to defend the body. The defeat of holding the arm extended, as I do, is much greater than it is as you stand. And in the long run, you must get the better of any one who is not sufficiently skillful to slay you before his arm becomes fatigued. What do you think, Maitre Charles? My cousin is two years younger than I am, and yet his wrist and arm are stronger than mine, as I could feel every time he put aside my attacks. Is that so? The Maitre d'Armes said in surprise. I had taken him for your senior. He will be a famous man at arms when he attains his full age. His defense is wonderfully strong, and, although I do not admit that he is superior to you with a point, he would be a formidable opponent to any of our best swordsmen in a melee, if, as he says, he is more accustomed to use the edge than the point. I will myself try him tomorrow, if he will permit me. I have always understood that the English are more used to strike than to thrust, and although in the duel the edge has little chance against the point, I own that it is altogether different in a melee on horseback, especially as the point cannot penetrate armor, while a stout blow well delivered with a strong arm, can break it in. Are you skilled in exercises of the ring, Monsieur Philip? Not at all. I have had no practice whatever in them. Except in some of the great houses, the tourney has gone quite out of fashion in England, and now I can ride a horse across country, I know nothing whatever of knightly exercises. My father is but a small proprietor, and, up to the time I left England, I have been but a schoolboy. If all your schoolboys understand the use of arms as you do, Maitre Charles said courteously, it is no wonder that the English are terrible fighters. I do not say that, Philip said, smiling. I have had the advantage of the best teaching, both English and French, to be had at Canterbury, and it would be a shame for me, indeed, if I had not learned to defend myself. What do you think, mother? Francois said. This cousin of mine, whom I had intended to patronize, turns out to be already a better swordsman than I am. Not better, madame, Philip said hastily. We were a fair match, neither having touched the other. Philip is too modest, mother, Francois laughed. Maitre Charles stopped us in time to save me from defeat. Why, he has a wrist like iron, this cousin of mine. We have done our best to have him well taught, madame Vaillon said. There were some good swordsmen among our Huguenot friends, and he has also had the best English teachers we could get for him. My husband always wished particularly that if he ever came over to visit our friends here, he should not be deficient in such matters. "'I feel a little crestfallen,' the countess said. "'I have been rather proud of Francois' skill as a swordsman, 
and I own that it is a little mortifying to find that Philip, who is two years younger, is already his match. Still, I am glad that it is so, for if they ride together into battle, I should wish that Philip should do honour to our race. Now, Philip, I have been hearing all about your mother's life, as well as that of your uncle and aunt. Now let us hear about your own, which must needs differ widely from that to which Francois has been accustomed. Your aunt says that your English schools differ altogether from ours. With us, our sons are generally brought up at home, and are instructed by the chaplain and Huguenot families, or by the priest and Catholic families, or else they go to religious seminaries, where they are taught what is necessary of books and Latin, being under strict supervision, and learning all other matters such as the use of arms after leaving school, or when at home with their families. Philip gave an account of his school life, and its rough games and sports. "'But is it possible, Philip?' the countess said in tones of horror. "'That you used to wrestle and to fight? Fight with your arms, and fists against rough boys, and sons of all sorts of common people?' "'Certainly I did, aunt, and it did me a great deal of good, and no harm so far as I know. All these rough sports strengthen the frame and give quickness and vigor, just the same as exercises with the sword do.' I should never have been so tall and strong as I am now, if, instead of going to an English school, I had been either, as you say, educated at home by a chaplain, or sent to be taught and looked after by priests. My mother did not like it at first, but she came to see that it was good for me. Besides, there is not the same difference between classes in England as there is in France. There is more independence in the lower and middle classes, and less haughtiness and pride in the upper. And I think that it is better so. It is the English custom, Emily, her sister said and I can assure you that my husband and I have got very English in some things. We do not love our country less, but we see that in many respects the English ways are better than ours, and we admire the independence of the people, every man respecting himself, though giving honor, but not lavishly, to those higher placed. The countess shrugged her shoulders. We will not argue, Marie. At any rate, whatever the process, it has succeeded well with Philip. The days passed quietly at the chateau. Before breakfast, Philip spent an hour on horseback, learning to manage his horse by the pressure of knee or hand. This was the more easy, as both his horses had been thoroughly trained in the menage, and under the instruction of Captain Montpace, who had been Francois's teacher, he made rapid progress. "'It is much easier to teach the man than the horse,' his instructor said. "'Although a horse learns readily enough when its rider is a master of the art, but with horse and rider alike ignorant, it is a long business to get them to work together as if they were one.' which is what it should be. As both your horses know their work, they obey your motions, however slight, and you will soon be able to pass muster on their backs. But it would take months of patient teaching for you so to acquire the art of horsemanship as to be able to train a horse yourself. After the lesson was over, Francois and Philip would tilt at rings and go through other exercises in the courtyard. Breakfast over, they went hawking or hunting. Of the former sport, Philip was entirely ignorant, and was surprised to learn how highly a knowledge of it was prized in France, and how necessary it was considered as part of the education of a gentleman. Upon the other hand, his shooting with a bow and arrow astonished Francois, for though it had never been a French weapon, and as the crossbow was fast giving way to the arquebus, but few gentlemen troubled themselves to learn the use of either one or the other. The pistol, however, was becoming a recognized portion of the outfit of a cavalier in the field, and following Francois's advice, Philip practiced with one steadily until he became a fair shot. They are cowardly weapons, Francois said, but for all that they are useful in battle. When you are surrounded by three or four pikemen thrusting at you, it is a good thing to be able to disembarrass yourself of one or two of them. Besides, these German horsemen, of whom the Guises imply so many, all carry firearms, and the contest would be too uneven if we were armed only with a sword. 
though for my part I wish that all the governments of Europe would agree to do away with the firearms of every description. They place the meanest footmen upon the level of the bravest knight, and in the end will, it seems to me, reduce armies to the level of machines. In the afternoons there were generally gatherings of Huguenot gentry, who came to discuss the situation, to exchange news, or to listen to the last rumors from Paris. No good had arisen from the conference of Bayonne, and one by one the privileges of the Huguenots were being diminished. The uprising of the Protestants of Holland was watched with the greatest interest by the Huguenots of France. It was known that several of the most influential of Huguenot nobles had met, at Valery and at Châtillon, to discuss with the Prince of Condé and Admiral Coligny the question of again taking up arms in defense of their liberties. It was rumored that the opinion of the majority was that the Huguenot standard should be again unfurled, and that this time there should be no laying down of their arms until freedom of worship was guaranteed to all, but that the Admiral had used all his powers to persuade them that the time had not yet come, and that it was better to bear trials and persecutions for a time, in order that the world might see that they had not appealed to arms until driven to it by the failure of all other hope of redress of their grievances. The elder men among the visitors at the chateau were of the admiral's opinion. The younger chafed at the delay. The position had become intolerable. Protestant worship was absolutely forbidden, except in a few specified buildings near some of the large towns, and all Protestants, save those dwelling in those localities, were forced to meet secretly, and at the risk of their lives, for the purpose of worship. Those caught transgressing the law were thrown into prison, subjected to crushing fines, and even punished with torture and death. Better a thousand times to die with swords in our hands, in the open field, than thus tamely to see our brethren ill-treated and persecuted, was the cry of the young men. And Philip, from daily hearing tales of persecution and cruelty, had become more and more zealous in the Huguenot cause, fully shared their feeling. In the presence of the elders, however, the more ardent spirits were silent, at all times grave and sober in manner and word. The knowledge that a desperate struggle could not long be deferred, and the ever-increasing encroachments of the Catholics, added to the gravity of their demeanor. Sometimes those present broke up into groups, talking in an undertone. Sometimes the gathering took the form of a general council. Occasionally some fugitive minister, or a noble from some district where the persecution was particularly fierce, would be present and their narratives would be listened to with stern faces by the elders, and with passionate indignation by the younger men. In spite of the decrees, the countess still retained her chaplain, and, before the meetings broke up, prayers were offered by him for their persecuted brethren, and for a speedy deliverance of those of the Reformed religion from the cruel disabilities under which they labored. Services were held night and morning in the chateau. These were attended not only by all the residents, but by many of the farmers and their families. The countess had already received several warnings from the Catholic authorities of the province, but to these she paid no attention, and there were no forces available to enforce the decree in her case, as it would require nothing short of an army to overcome the opposition that be expected, joined as she would be by the other Huguenot gentry of the district. End of chapter 3 Recorded February 2008